In nomine Patri, ne Fili, ne Spiritus Sancti. Amen. Okay, so let's continue reading and reflecting on the introduction to a life of devotion by St. Francis de Sales. St. Francis is now speaking on the subject of inspirations. By inspiration, we mean all the interior attractions, movements, reproaches, and pangs of remorse, all the lights and rays of knowledge which God causes within us, preventing our hearts with his blessings through his fatherly care and love in order to awaken us, to stir us up, to urge, to urge and attract us to holy virtues, to heavenly love, to good, re to good resolutions. In a word, to all that leads to our everlasting good. So when we think, when we speak of inspirations in the Catholic sense, we're basically talking about all those little interior things that motivate us and inspire us to repent of our wrongdoing and aspire to embrace and strive towards the good. So now he's talking about the stages that we go through when an inspiration moves us to do some good. So first, he, being God, first God proposes it to us by his inspiration. So this is some good thing or good act or good intention. So first, God proposes, proposes it to us by his in inspiration. Secondly, we entertain it. Thirdly, we consent to it. For just as there are three downward steps to sin, the temptation, the delectation and the consent, so also there are three upward steps to virtue. The inspiration, which is the opposite of the temptation. That's an interesting definition, right? An inspiration is the opposite of a temptation. The delectation in the inspiration, which is the opposite of the delectation in the temptation. And the consent to the inspiration which is the opposite of the consent to the temptation. So the delectation is simply the inviting in or the welcoming or giving your attention to an, a temptation or an inspiration. So first of all, you have the inspiration. That's on God's part. Then it knocks at our door and we have the choice to welcome it in, to entertain it as a thought, um, think about it, you know, and then after that, we can consent. And in the consenting is obviously when we do, we act upon it, right? So if God inspires you, for example, to, I don't know, pray your rosary the first thing in the morning, you have that little flicker in your heart or your mind of, oh, I should do that. And then you can welcome that thought in, maybe nurture it a bit and think, okay, maybe I really should. But you still, to the very end, have that choice of saying, ah, but I'm not going to. But when you finally do say yes, that is you taking the light of that inspiration and bearing full fruit with it. So... 
it's an interesting topic because I suppose inspirations make up so much of our lives. But there isn't really a great deal more to say about them kind of in brief. Because our approach to them should obviously always be the same. We should look out for them. We should be attentive. I suppose the only other thing to reflect on is the idea of, well, how do we tell between, how, we do, how do we tell the difference between an inspiration, a temptation, and then simply a neutral appetite or uh, inclination? And I suppose the shortest answer would be to go back to that idea of what a t um, an inspiration actually is. And like St. Francis said, it's anything that coaxes us towards everlasting life and salvation and sainthood. So if anything is making us directly inclined to do the good itself, then we can re recognize that as an inspiration. Temptation is then obviously easy to spot because it's the opposite. Anything that would draw us away, directly draw us away into sin and into eternal, in, well, into death um, and into well, into hell, ultimately. But anything that would draw us away from that life is what would be sin. Um, and if there are such things, anything that doesn't really go towards one or the other, if we acted upon it, it would just be a neutral outcome. That would be something in between. So we have to just simply be attentive day to day, hour to hour, minute to minute, for when those inspirations are going to arise. Um, and then nurture them as, as, as if... Um, God is sprinkling loads of little seeds across our day and we have the chance once those seeds have been planted to water and nurture them or to simply pick them up and throw them away if we feel that they're inconvenient to us so that's a moral choice that we're constantly making every time these things come to our attention Now St. Francis is moving to the topic of confession. Um, okay. It is an abuse to confess any kind of sin, be it mortal or venial, without wishing for it to be cleansed, or without wishing to be cleansed from it, since confession is only instituted for that purpose. So... It's interesting, right? When I before I became um, a Christian, before I became a Catholic, atheists I would speak to used to be quite contemptible of the whole idea of confession, and their reason in being that, okay, so you could just rack up all of these horrific things, like you could commit murder, steal from people, you know, just be an absolute monster for the whole of your life, and what? Then you just get to go speak to a priest, and then clear the check and it's like in some sense yes that is in in one sense the miraculous element of confession and why it's so wonderful but in the other sense no it's nowhere near as simple as that because the point is you don't go in to the confessional booth just with the idea of abusing that sacrament so that you can just wipe your slate clean and then go back to sinning no, the idea is that you have to confess properly for it to genuinely be valid confession. You have to couple it with the intention to not do it again. Now, that doesn't mean that you're going to guarantee 
for a certainty that you're never going to commit those sins again. That's a different matter. That's you struggling against sin with the help of God throughout the whole of your life. But the idea that you would go into the confessional booth with this blase attitude that, yeah, I know I should say that I've sinned, but I'm quite happy to the next moment I get the chance. Um, you know, this stupid priest is just going to give me redemption and then I'm going to just go and do whatever I want the moment I can. That is completely insane. And that is simply not how it works. The reason why confession in that sense is so difficult and why these atheists I spoke to got it wrong was the fact that to really want to confess, you have to really want redemption. And then for that, you have to really realise what you've done is wrong and really accept that it's wrong. Even if it doesn't penetrate right down to every layer of, layer of your soul, you at least have to make a conscious recognition that it should and will be by your efforts, if you can, removed from your life. So basically, not only should you not abuse the sacrament of confession, but in actual fact, it can't be abused for that reason. Okay, so here's an interesting point that people not, might not be able to interact with very often. Or come across, sorry. Do not make only those superfluous accusations which many make by routine, such as, I have not loved God as much as I ought, I have not prayed with as much devotion as I ought, I have not loved my neighbour as I ought, I have not received the sacraments with as much reverence as I ought, and such like. The reason being that if you say such things, you say nothing definite which may enable the confessor to understand the state of your conscience. For all the saints in paradise and everyone on earth could say the same things if they went to confession. That's an interesting point, right? Because all of those little confessions he just went through, like I've not loved God enough, I've not prayed as much as I could have done, um, I've not loved my neighbour as much as I could. He's like, yeah, they're all technically true but they're so broad you haven't really said anything concrete the main thing that it made me think of when i came across that passage was the fact that if you listen to a lot of people in the kind of self-help uh, self-development sphere if you like a lot of people are into the um increasing you know your day-to-day -day productivity and one of the things is, is the whole topic of achieving your goals. And one of the things that you'll get um, told regularly is that if you seek to achieve and pursue a lot of goals, make sure they're clear and well-defined with clear parameters. Now, simple example, it's like, well, I want to be healthy. And it's like, okay, but what exactly does that entail? That's so broad, it's almost like you have no idea where to begin, right? So to be healthy, do you want to be stronger? Do you want to have better nutrition? Do you want to lose a certain amount of weight? Do you want to be able to lift a certain amount of weight at the gym? Do you want to be able to run a certain amount of miles? Uh, do you mean mentally healthy, physically healthy, spiritually healthy? What, what are you talking about exactly? Because you, if you simply aim for the goal of being healthy, there's nothing to grab onto, right? And I think it's a similar case with this. It's like, Okay, you haven't been as good of a Catholic as you could have been. That doesn't help anywhere near as much as saying, 
okay, but I need to, I get angry too often. I specifically got angry five times this week with my wife or my friend, for example, right? It's like, okay, that's now a concrete thing that we can deal with. Next week, or by the time you come to confession again, try not to do that specific thing. Try not to be angry again. Um, with the comparison to like setting your goals in the rest of life, it's like, well, being healthy, it's like, I want to be able to ride, run five kilometers. That's the kind of healthy I want to be. And it's like, great, okay. So maybe next week we can start you off at one kilometer. The week after that, we can get you to two. And then in that way, we have these clearly defined parameters that we can work with to know what we need to do to help you develop. And so if you imagine that your, your trainer would have that conversation with you at the gym, your spiritual trainer, your confessor or your priest would have that conversation with you in the confessional. So, okay, you've got many things you need to sort out, but if you want to be spiritually healthy, then we can focus on you being less angry week by week. And yes, if you keep stumbling, and especially if it makes you fall into mortal sin, come back with the grace of God. We will refresh you with confession and then try again until we overcome this problem. So that's the general idea. Don't be too broad with your confession. Make sure that you're being explicit and concrete with the things that you want to tackle and overcome. St. Francis is now speaking on the topic of the virtues and their exercise and also like the balance between them as well. This will become clear as we go through it. So he begins by talking about charity. Now, again, the other thing to really emphasize is that charity in the English language is a very limited word. Charity in the genuine Catholic sense is, as I've explained, the virtue of agape or the virtue of genuine divine love, which is selfless love. It's not limited to simply, you know, giving people more time and attention than you might otherwise feel inclined to or even more money. But it, it's much broader. True Christian Catholic charity is about loving and intending uh, everything for someone for their good, loving and intending the good for someone for the sake of that very good. So he says of charity, charity never enters into the heart without bringing with her the whole retinue of the other virtues, exercising them and setting them to work as a captain does his soldiers. But she does not set them to work all at once, nor all alike, nor at all times, nor in all places. And this is really interesting. This is really interesting. First, you get that image of love. I think love is actually in many ways a better word than charity, but divine love being the captain of all virtues. And then when that is striding forward, it brings the others along with it ready to be put to use in the appropriate occasions. And I think that's why this passage is interesting. Let me continue. It is a great defect in many that when they undertake the practice of some, some particular virtue, they insist upon producing acts thereof on all sorts of occasions and wish, like those ancient philosophers, either always to weep or always to laugh. And they do even worse, 
when they blame and censure those who do not always practice the same virtues that they do. So it's like there's a time and a place for everything. Again, one of the reasons why I find Catholicism so profound is because it stretches right into the depths of the Logos and Telos of reality and the fact that God exists and we have eternal life and all that. And on the other end of the um, spectrum, it's just almost like complete common sense for most of the stuff that you come across. Um, let's say you have the virtue of patience. Okay. Now, patience is a virtue. But in that regard, is it appropriate to be utterly patient to the nth degree in all circumstances? Well, it depends, right? If your family are all standing in the middle of, in the middle of a road, and you see a bus is coming, and it might well hit them, and there's an old woman walking in front of you who's taking a bit too long to move out of the way, is having the utmost patience in that circumstance the best course of action, right? Because if you don't move out the way, if she doesn't move out the way quickly enough, then you might lose your family. I know it's an extreme example, but I'm just throwing, together, throwing some stuff together. But I think you get the idea, right? If you're being truly charitable every moment of every day you'll have the other virtues ready at hand for when you need them right so in that situation the uh, the virtue of patience would probably be inappropriate right people need to get out of the way you haven't got time to be patient you need to go and protect your family but the virtue of fortitude or strength or courage would probably be very appropriate so with your love, your, your willingness to, to look after and protect your family, then that um, virtue is mustered to the fore. And then that, comes, uh, that is the appropriate place for, for your strength and, and fortitude to come to use. Likewise, even if patience was inappropriate at that moment, if you keep that love uh, in your heart, then... Maybe a day later, you're sat there with uh, a student who's taking a bit too long to uh, understand the thing that they're learning. But that is a time when patience is very appropriate because they, you need to be able to wait on them to catch up with the thing that they're learning. So in that moment, again, if you keep that love in your heart, then the patience can get mustered forth then when it's appropriate for it to be of use, for it to be the maximum use for the best things to happen for the people around you. It is a mistake, as he emphasised, to, again, make everything too monochromatic, as if you master the virtue of patience, and then you demand that everyone be absolutely, utterly patient with all things at all times. It's not as simple as that. Um, the vibrancy of virtue is way more colourful. However... This is why we should never be binary. It's neither completely one or the other in most cases. There are nevertheless some virtues which are almost universal in practice. And he said almost, but you know he's making a point that there are things that we can use basically all the time. Gentleness, temperance, modesty, humility, and humility 
are virtues with which all the actions of our lives should be coloured. So even if you barge the woman out of the way so that you can go and protect your family in the middle of the road, you can have a touch of gentleness where you don't do it too harshly. Um, yeah, sorry, my, my imagination isn't good enough to give you all of the, put all of these virtues to use. Um, here, I mean, the only one I can focus on definitely is the idea that humility should be interwoven with every single thing that we do. Um, I mean, there are so many different ways to approach humility. Humility and charity are often positioned as the two prime virtues, as if it's hard to say whether charity comes first or humility, or whether you would say be humble first. And then they're both like on a equal playing field when it comes to the top spot. Um, one of the easiest ways to explain why is because the opposite of humility is pride um, and basically a, a unjust emphasis of your own value and worth, especially the value of your own will. It is arguably the thing that makes the devil the devil because there was God before him and then God's intentions and his will for including his will for people like mankind. And then the devil comes along and says, no, but my will and intentions are actually more important. So that's why he rebelled. Um, in many ways, pride is our fundamental flaw for that same reason. We're putting our own will. It's, it comes down to the fact that we think we know better, right? That was, that was in large, that was the sin of Adam and Eve. That God had told us something and we think we know better. It's a, amplification of ourselves beyond what is just and so why is humility good for all other moments of life well it's like you allow yourself to be small underneath the world around you but then because it's larger you can see it more clearly i'm sorry if that's a bit abstract um what do i mean the ultimately prideful man never learns anything because he always thinks he knows best already. Yeah. So there's life going by him, trying to teach him thousands of lessons every minute of every day. And he doesn't properly attend to it because he thinks he already knows what he needs to. It's actually a stifling thing. That's the funny thing about it. Pride puffs you up, but it actually keeps you small. Um, whereas humility puts you in your proper place, which is actually as something very small. I mean, just look at the sky, right? Look, can contemplate for five seconds how infinitesimal you must you are um, if god exists you don't even have power over your own existence and being you didn't create the beating of your heart or the skin on your hands or the air that you breathe um, so you are small you owe a lot to the world so if you just keep that in mind it allows you to put yourself in, in your proper context and give everything else including god and his creation and the people around you their proper respect and put them in their proper magnitude. I don't think I'm, even from that, I don't think I'm doing the, the virtue proper um, justice, but that's why in all situations it would be helpful. Anyway. Ah, another interesting point. 
Among the virtues, we should prefer that which is most comfortable to our duty and not that which is most comfortable to our inclination. Very simply, you need to be a teacher, so you need to be very patient on a day-to-day -day basis. And you think, yeah, but I actually prefer being, uh, prefer giving money to people. Yeah. So you really emphasize the fact that you can do that. And it's like, yeah, but your duty calls for you to be patient. Um, on the other hand, if you're a, a king or a warlord or a, you know, a soldier, the main duty, which is proper to you, is probably things like, again, fortitude, um, discipline, those kinds of those kinds of virtues. And you might say, yeah, but I prefer, in that case, you might even prefer being patient. It doesn't matter. You, as a soldier, you need to exemplify those virtues because that is what your station requires. Yeah, simple. Yeah, an interesting example. So he's talking about the apostles. The apostles, on the other hand, who had been commissioned to preach the gospel and distribute the bread of heaven to souls, judged extremely well that it was wrong for them to be hindered in this holy charge by practising the virtue of care for the poor, although this is a very excellent virtue. Every vocation must needs practice some special virtue. Distinct in practice are the virtues of, the, of a prelate, as are likewise those of a prince, those of a soldier, those of a married woman, and those of a widow. And although all ought to have all the virtues, yet all are not bound to practice them alike. For each one ought to practice in a particular manner those which are requisite to the kind of life to which he is called. So I think I've explained that latter part of that section already. You know, that example of the apostles, they were told to spread the gospel and distribute, as he says, the bread of heaven to souls, right? So uh, the bread of understanding. And because of that, they knew that they didn't have the time or the resources and would be slowed down if they tried to distribute bread to the poor, right? So physically, like food. Um, So there you see, because they've been given their duty, they had to prioritise. We have to spread the word, and so we don't have time to stop and feed the poor. But that doesn't mean that other people in their society shouldn't then take the time to stop and feed the poor, right? Um, each one of us is our own flower, which brings, brings its own colour, right? We're all our own tool that does our own job. It is useful for each one to devote himself to the special practice of some one virtue, not indeed to abandon the rest, but to keep the spirit more exactly ordered and occupied. Let me read on a bit to kind of understand more what he means there. Useful for each one to devote himself to the special practice of some virtue. Oh, okay. 
certainly ordered and occupied. I mean, I suppose the saints are a good example of this, right? Different saints have different um, they exemplify different aspects of of virtue. Um, so for example, you could say that Saint Aquinas and Saint Augustine exemplify the virtue of wisdom. And then you could say, for example, that Saint um is it Teresa of Lisieux who um, who spent a lot of life in mortification, exemplified mortification? Um, again, the the warrior saints like Saint John de Arc or um, I suppose Saint Michael was the first one that comes to mind. They they exemplify uh, courage and fortitude and that kind of thing. But that doesn't again it doesn't mean though that um, for example. Saint Teresa, if Saint Teresa exemplified mortification and Saint Aquinas exemplified wisdom, it doesn't mean that Saint, um, Aquinas was devoid of mortification or that Saint Teresa was devoid of wisdom, right? But they found their special niche, for lack of a better word, niche, that they were able to really hone. And that probably comes out of the inclination of their characters as well, right? Um, they have certain inborn trends and inclinations that God has welled up inside them and that leads them to pursue lives in which these virtues are um, honed. So kind of a little summary here. Among the servants of God, some make it their aim to serve the sick, others to relieve the poor, Others to give little children a better knowledge of Christian doctrine. Others to bring back souls that are lost and gone astray. Others to adorn churches and deck altars. And others to promote peace and concord among men. Each one of us finds their own place in the church. In the Christian life. Is an interesting piece of advice. When we are assailed by some vice, we must, as far as we can, embrace the practice of the contrary virtue, referring the other virtues to this. For by this means we shall overcome our enemy and shall not fail to make progress in all other virtues. If I am assailed by pride or by anger, I must in everything incline and bend myself towards the side of humility and gentleness, and I must make any other exercise of prayer, of the sacraments, of prudence, of constancy, and of sobriety, and of sobriety, subservient to this end. And the main image that comes to mind is that temptation and evil are swinging our pendulum one way, and the best way to counteract that is not by putting that pendulum to the middle, but pushing it all the way to the other side. Um, the other thing that comes to mind is, I know that in some cases, some of the unhealthiest people by the time they reach adulthood are people who are very healthy um, as children. What I mean by that is they were so accustomed to, say, doing sport and being healthy when they were younger, 
that by the time they get older, they actually go the other way. And then the flip side of that is people, sometimes the healthiest people or the most competent are people who were incompetent with something for most of their life, but then wanted to completely counteract that and therefore had the force of will to then become better than the people who were better than them in the first place. So you might have a guy who was fat all the way through school, um, where all of his classmates were sporty football players. But then by the time the football players are 30, they've given up on football and they've gone to the pub and started eating pies and they're all fat now. Because the fat guy, the fat kid, wanted to become a fit guy, by the time he reached 20, he actually consciously put all of his own personal effort and willpower into that. And so he actually overtakes them after a certain point. You may well even understand more about health and fitness than they do because they might have just been drafted into the, the activity when they were young by their parents or by the situation. And so that kind of comes to mind. If we're dealing with temptation, um, then more of our attention is then kind of drawn to it. And I suppose in some ways that gives us um, the ability to counteract it and overcome it and push back against it in an um in an in a special way in a special way yeah yes. an interesting little tidbit here St. Gregory Nazianzen says that by a single act of some virtue, well and perfectly performed, a person has attained the height of virtue. That's either said enough by itself, or I don't really know what to add to it. So, okay. Moving on to a different section now. It sometimes happens that those who think themselves to be angels are not even good men, and that in their case there is more grandeur in the words and phrases which they make use of than in their sentiments and their actions. Outward piety doesn't prove anything. Um, that's really worth understanding, I think, straight out of the gate. Um, no matter how many rosaries you tell people you pray or how many mortifications you do or even how many shows of charity you do it doesn't it, i'm not saying it's trivial but that can all just be show right jesus really took the pharisees up on this in a big way you know this idea that they had all these outward appearances of of being god-fearing and religious but ultimately, on the inside, they were hollow and empty. Or he said they were like dead carcasses on the, on the inside or something, didn't he? So, but this is the thing. You, you can use that 
outward piety or the outward shows of piety to fool both other people and yourselves, right? Because you'll think, oh, aren't I such a great, wonderful, holy person because I, I pray 15 rosaries a day or I mortify myself 10 times a month or whatever. Um, but that is just the devil whisper. From what I understand, that is just the devil whispering to you. Yes, aren't you great? Aren't you wonderful? Aren't you better than everyone else? Um, aren't you as good as you need to be? Right? Don't ever forget, the saints genuinely thought themselves to be lowly and wretched people. And again, that's that whole, this is now it ties back to that idea of humility again. They saw themselves in their proper context. They saw themselves underneath the totality of things and God himself, right? So be wary of the fact of the circumstance in which you imagine yourself to be an angel. And another bit of wisdom I came across, I think this was from C.S. Lewis to give him credit, was the idea that There is no more telling sign of pride than when you think to yourself that you're humble enough. So it's just something worth something worth keeping in mind. Many would be willing to have afflictions, provided that they are not inconvenienced by them. I'm just going to read that again. Many would be willing to have afflictions, provided that they are not inconvenienced by them. That's interesting, right? Um really moves into areas of self-reflection. We know that we, as part of our virtues, part of our spiritual training, we should welcome the trials that God sends to us in our lives, the afflictions that we have to deal with on a daily basis and overcome. And so, again, it's, it's thematic. It's the theme, in some sense, is spiritual pride, right? Um, I would love to be pious. I would love to be holy. I would love to show and prove to myself and other people that I can deal with those afflictions and expect, accept God's will and overcome the trials of life. But I would rather they're not an inconvenience, right? So it's like saying I want an affliction, but not affliction that's actually an affliction, because in that case it would be painful and I wouldn't really want it. I'm not saying this attitude is easy to have by any stretch of the imagination. But from my understanding, the right attitude is doesn't matter what the affliction is and it doesn't matter how inconvenient. Um, in the face of it, our duty is to be good and to accept it and to overcome it. Um, so again, it's just one of those things that's worth keeping your interior eye on. And you've got to ask yourself what attitude exactly we have to ask ourselves, what attitude exactly do we have? 
towards the sufferings that come our way? And are we being honest about it? So St. Francis now expands this a bit. Now I say, Father Thayer, that we have that we must have patience not only to be ill, but to be ill with the illness which God wills, in the place where he wills, and amongst such persons as he wills, and so of other tribulations. When some sickness comes upon you, make use of such remedies as are possible and according to God, for to do otherwise would be to tempt his divine majesty. But when that is done, Await with entire resignation such issue as may be pleasing to God. Should it please him that the remedies overcome the sickness, thank him humbly. But should it please him that the sickness overcome the remedy, but should it please him that the sickness overcome the remedies, bless him with patience. It's an interesting mind frame that you've got to have towards this kind of thing. I'm reminded of Job a bit, but I don't think the connections are clear enough for me to articulate. But in any, in any case, he made this one interesting point where he said, "You, if you're sick, use remedies if that's possible. Because if you don't, you're simply tempting God's will. It's not like God simply wants you to suffer. I mean, in the story of Job, God didn't make Job suffer, the devil did, but he allowed it um, as a test. But, I mean, as a, as a kind of thought experiment, if the devil had sent a train down a train track towards Job's family and children. And he simply stood there placidly whilst the train ran through and killed them. With the excuse that that was simply God's intention. Then, of course, that would be immoral. He wouldn't be doing his duty. He wouldn't be doing his due diligence. But the idea is that if Job had tried all of his the best that he could to get there in time and he was simply unable to save his family. It's a different matter. That is, that is then not him tempting uh, the will of God. But ultimately, if, if God's will was for it to play out that way, for him to then have the test of accepting it. So it's a different thing. So being sent afflictions by God is not an, an excuse to simply succumb to them and indeed for whatever evil, uh, to allow whatever evil is in them to be done. But at the same time, if we cannot overcome them, we have to accept that to some degree and, and learn our lesson from it, or learn the lesson that he's trying to teach us, which is to be patient with his providence and his will. Um, Okay, here's another interesting one. 
Many, when they are sick, afflicted, or offended by anyone, refrain from actually complaining and showing weakness. For that, in their opinion, and this is true, would clearly show a great want of strength and of generosity. But they desire extremely, and by diverse artifices, contrive that others should sympathise with them, feel great compassion for them, and esteem them not only afflicted, but patient and courageous. Now this is indeed patience, but a false patience, which is in fact no other thing than a very fastidious and very subtle ambition and vanity, which are woven closely in with pride. Very interesting, again, to think about. I think all of these, most of these passages we've been looking at in this session have had this theme of spiritual pride and subtle self-deception, right? The idea is that, first of all, humanity was ignorant and barbaric prior to the church in many ways, right? Because we didn't have the institution to, to guard us in the light of morality. But once the church was established then all of these moral standards are set. And then when everyone values those moral standards, right? So when Catholics value those virtues, those virtues can then be abused to fuel people's sin and pride. That's the twist. And so this is another example of that. You might, we should bear, for example, if we're sick, we shouldn't overburden people with it and we shouldn't mope and moan and do an old woe is me kind of situation. So St. Francis is accepting that, is saying, okay, that's, that's good and patient to be, to have that attitude. But there are some people who will subtly find ways to draw attention to the fact that they are being so patient and so fastidious under their illness, right? Maybe they'll kind of point out, oh, it doesn't really hurt, honestly. It really should do. I really should be in a lot of pain, but I'm, I'm okay. I can deal with it. Yeah. And then they might know that, depending on who they're speaking to, the person will then reply, wow, what a brave and courageous person you are. Right. Again, it's hard to dissect. I think each person has to either judge this with the people they know in terms of their character and intentions. Because that conversation I just gave to you, if it was phrased differently, like the actual words themselves, that could be an honest conversation. But it all depends on the intentions that the people are having. What are they trying to coax out of themselves and other people? Are they fishing for compliments in a way that they're not even being honest with, uh, honest with themselves about? These are all the kinds of things that they would have to, that would have to, that a light would have to be shined on for the problem to be overcome. So these are things worth keeping in mind and then being diligent about in both yourself and other people. Okay, so I think these, these couple of passages are a good place to finish up on. So again, on that theme of overcoming pride, spiritual pride, which is what a lot of this is making us feel, um, making us be conscious, cognizant of. And then again, the cure, the opposite to pride is humility. Now remember I said, humility makes us understand how small we are. 
and then amplifies the things around us. So it puts us in our proper place and context. So St. Francis says, we, may, we, say many, we say many a time that we are nothing, that we are misery itself and the very off-scouring of the world. But we should be very annoyed were we taken at our word and proclaimed to be what we say. Okay. Very interesting passage, right? You can imagine someone flaunting around, again, flaunting around their piety, saying, oh, I am just nothing, I'm nothing before the Lord, I'm just but dirt and ash, I wear my rags all day, I ate nothing but soup, um, aren't I an awful person? And then if someone turned around and said, yes, you are, wouldn't it be interesting if that person actually got offended by that? You could say if their pride was damaged by that fact. Very interesting. True humility makes no pretense of being humble and scarcely ever utters words of humility. For it desires not only to hide the other virtues, but also and principally it seeks to hide itself. My advice, therefore, is this, Philothea, either let us refrain from speaking words of humility, or let us say them with a true interior sentiment comfortable to what we pronounce outwardly. Let us never lower our eyes without humbling our hearts. Let us not make a show of wishing to be the last, unless in our hearts we wish to be such. Make sure you're being honest with yourself, I think is the main takeaway there. And don't try and say that you are what you are not. Okay, that'll be all for now. Thank you.